Hey everyone, this is Siobhan and you are listening to the Creative Outsiders Podcast where we connect the dots for women's storytellers. Basically, we want to show you it's possible to live your filmmaking dreams. And today I have the pleasure of getting ready to sit down and chat with Marissa. I can't wait to talk to her because I know that all my followers, people who listen, or even anybody who's just dropping in for the first time, you're going to love it because I get to talk lawyer talk, all information on this particular podcast and anything on our website in reference to this podcast are for informational and educational purposes only. Your listening to this podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship with Marissa or Crespo Law Office. If you have any specific questions, please consult with an attorney authorized to practice law in your jurisdiction. Just had to get that out the way. So welcome, Marissa, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so glad that you were able to sit down and chat with us. And I know that all of my creatives, all my screenwriters, directors, they're waiting. They're like, we need Marissa so we can get our life. (laughs) (laughs) So just to start off, because I know this is a little bit different from uh, what I usually do, but I know that it's very beneficial for all of my sister friend creatives, but how did you get started in the field of law, but specifically entertainment law? You know, it was kind of a a backdoor way of doing it. Um, As as a background, I was definitely always interested in entertainment law. I love to to write and I used to love dancing. So Alvin Ailey was kind of like where I was shooting for and, you know, in a dance career uh, back in the day when I was, (laughs) when I was a kid. So the entertainment scene was something that I was very much interested in working and operating in. Where law kind of came into the picture, um, I knew I wanted to go to law school when I was in late high school, beginning of college. And so I kind of crafted, you know, this legal career, the inception of it doing public advocacy work. So just focusing on the intersection of race, gender, and law, how it can protect us, how it can, can actually hinder our progress. And I was doing a lot of immigration interpretation work, so translation services for those who were seeking some form of immigration relief. I started thinking in my second year after I did an internship, fast forward in law school, after my first year, you know, working for a summer at a, a clinic focused on immigration, domestic violence issues, and crim law, I knew that that was not really the area that I could see myself doing day in and day out. It's very, you know, heavy work. It's a broken system, so it's like short-term success in certain respects. And a lot of those who were seeking relief had a long way to go. So I had to figure out how do I transition my career to do entertainment, which is what I was really fascinated in. But having this background in immigration law and advocacy work, uh, it was going to be hard for me to kind of make that switch over career-wise. So a way that I did it, there's actually a couple of immigration artist visas that a lot of people don't know about unless they're operating in the industry called OMP visas. So it's basically a determination of whether or not you have an extraordinary ability if you're an entertainer who's looking to come to the United States to basically perform in the respective art in which you have excelled at. So I started researching that and researching firms in New York that I was really interested in speaking to. And I happened to turn an informational session with one boutique law firm into an internship opportunity. And from there, that's how I was able to kind of start my career path in entertainment 
and focusing on the immigration side, which also exposed me to more of like the union issues. Um, that also translated very well into me, you know, getting a legal internship in the legal department with the Screen Actors Guild and AFRA at a time when they were doing their historical merger. So I got to see the union side of entertainment. And then I just worked on independent film productions. I acted as a, you know, a, a production assistant. I also worked as a line producer on any film projects because I always loved the business and legal side where they kind of meet and a line producer role is perfect for that. And just try to get my hands on as much entertainment as possible to kind of develop this career of understanding the business because the legal side, the contracts are only as good as, you know, the drafter, not only drafting them, but understanding the business operations of how the parties kind of relate to one another and operate. Um, that's kind of how I, how I started out. And I continue, you know, working on the transactional side of entertainment, but also learning different facets of entertainment that really would make me a specialized generalist, you know, from employment law matters, obviously, immigration, uh, commercial real estate, to just your, your basic agreements, working with talent agencies and management firms and artists who are doing a collaborative project. Like, you just schooled me on a whole lot of stuff in, like, two minutes. <laughs> but, um, what I was going to say, that's really interesting. I never thought about that, what, what your entry door was as far as immigration and entertainment. Like, that's really interesting. You know, in an area that's very much of a niche practice with entertainment, that mm-hmm. there are only a few who do it, do it well. And it, but it's a great intersection of immigration and entertainment law. Um, and trying to think about entertainment as more of a globalized, you know, practice, right? So mm-hmm. you've got entertainers that are coming from over the country who, you know, come from respective countries where they may be, you know, equivalent of our Beyonce. Mm-hmm. And then they come into the United States because they're really trying to build their art form. But then there are these confines of, you know, the legal restrictions of what they can do coupled with their desire to maybe grow in, in different artistic forms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to me, I thought that was really fascinating of a narrative because there are a lot of people involved in that decision-making process of whether or not entertainers can come into the United States from, you know, an organization called the USCIS. Um, you have, you know, the, the Department of Homeland Security kind of assessing this. You've got labor unions that are involved in, in the state of whether or not we should have foreign entertainers versus the fact that we've got a lot of unemployed or underemployed American workers who may be able to do a foreign accent in a film project, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so why hire or bring someone overseas when you have someone here in the United States who needs the work? So just kind of seeing that process, it was kind of like this legal journalistic nature that I kind of approached to not only the internship, but just writing my first piece that was published through Columbia Journal of the Arts on that topic, you know, just seeing the, the discrepancies or, you know, the discretionary nature each step of the way in the application process for an entertainer to come into the United States to really practice their craft. You don't know yet, but I'm such a geek. So I'm going to go <laughs> down this rabbit hole of now Googling all of this information about it. It's so sad. <laughs> see me over well, yeah, if anyone's, interested, <laughs> I mean, if anyone's interested, shameless plug, um, the piece that I wrote when I was in law school was called The Final Curtain Call, talking about the administrative challenges and the O and visa process. So that was published in the Columbia Journal of Law and the Arts, and it kind of gives a background context. Now, this was published back in 2011. 
So I'm sure there have been administrative decisions since then. I've not kept I'm up sure. with it, but it gives <laughs> kind of a layout of the land, especially yes, now in, in these Trumponian times. Yeah, um, I'm sure things have have changed, but it kind of gives an initial layout of what the process is like, and you know all the stakeholders involved in the application process. Hmm. Okay, well I'm not going to keep going through that because I. I already have other questions that I know people want answers to, but I am going to read that article. Just to jump right in as far as filmmakers, because a lot of people who listen in are, I have a wide audience, but I do have a lot of people who are new or intermediate as far as women in film. So what is, if you had to pinpoint one thing that newbie filmmakers and even seasoned filmmakers are doing wrong on the uh, contract side, what would you say that is? Like, where are we blowing it? I would say not thinking about all of the rights involved. Like, what are the underlying rights? How do you envision the dissemination of your work? I think that's really key because you kind of have to reverse engineer the situation. So I can kind of give an example, put it in context. Like some of the first questions I ask you know, a filmmaker who is looking to get a distribution deal, you know, they're talking all these things. They're in the pre-production process. Mm-hmm. It's like the perfect time to consult with them because that's really when you want to have, you know, legal counsel on board at the inception of the project before you start attaching, you know, any talent and definitely securing, you know, above the line as well as below the line. I always ask the question of where do you envision this project? Do you want it? stream through Netflix? Are you looking for, you know, a theatrical release, which really, I mean, that's a whole separate discussion of mm-hmm. just the overhead costs and it's even worthwhile, right? And from there, you've got to think about, okay, what types of rights do you need to get in the process? How do you plan on building your brand? What is your brand? And I know that's an odd question to think about for some folks, but I would say whether or not you're a, a newbie filmmaker or you're seasoned, you have a brand. If you're an actress, if you're a writer, if you're a producer, you are a walking brand. You're providing a service and maybe you're bringing it as far as your art form, something nuanced to the forefront. So you're, you're bringing in your voice into the entertainment realm. So what are you saying? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that, you know, filmmakers, anybody involved in the creative aspect of the entertainment industry needs to really think about Especially now that entertainment, we see it's, it's multifaceted and kind of it's crossed between corporate and branding, right? Mm-hmm. Athletes are constantly look at it, you know, Colin Kaepernick and the Nike deal. I mean, he is a walking brand. He has chosen a specific path. And so I, I always say to filmmakers, think about that from day one. And if you haven't, it, it all follows through. Of what you should do is kind of getting your organizational structure together. Like, what is your business? Are you an LLC? Are you an S Corp? How are you housing your intellectual property assets? Like, do you have multiple projects you're planning on working on? How are you planning on approaching distributors or hitting, you know, the festival circuit to, to build the brand awareness? Those are the questions that I think that every filmmaker should be asking themselves from day one. And I think that's very good that you pointed that out because I do know, and see, for me, it was a little bit different. I transitioned into filmmaking after writing my first book. So for me, I did look at it 
as myself and uh, my book as a business or a brand. And I think that's the issue that most filmmakers have because all they know is I'm a creative and they don't look at themselves as a brand. So I think that that is the thing that makes it difficult for them to then recognize, I'm not trying to like scare people, but just the seriousness of your, like what you're doing. I can mm-hmm. tell you 65% of the people that I have encountered in the last, let's say, six months, not even, let's say 75, have no type of legal structure, have no type of contracts in place, and they're just out here winging it. And that's what I was going to ask mm-hmm. you, because a lot of the first thing I hear is, because you know, if you're, well, I'm not going to say everybody, but if you're a creative, you're putting your money into your uh, project. So mm-hmm. the first thing they say is, I cannot afford a lawyer. Like, what do you say to those people? Then you can't afford to do this business because quite frankly, from the beginning, you have to think about all the rights that you need to acquire. And if you're trying to do it lean, I can tell you now, even if you got a distribution deal, mm-hmm. what's going to stop your film from actually making it, you know, on the Netflix catalog or actually being streamed in any other platform is the fact that they will question, okay, chain of title. Like, is this your project? Do you, have you secured all of the rights? Mm. Um, if, you're, if you're looking at them, you know, dumbfounded or you realize that you have to actually engage an attorney at that point in time to kind of rush to get the distribution deal, but also show the clearance of the chain of title or let's say you're doing a documentary on life, on someone's life. Um, did you get the life story rights? I mean, these are just basic things that if you didn't have an attorney securing those rights and paying close attention to how expansive and broad those rights were granted to you at the beginning of your relationship with, you know, the, the subject matter or the film leading up to, you know, production, post-production, and finally distribution. That can be problematic. That ends up costing you more in the process. Mm-hmm. So I always say, you know, to keep it lean, you can always parcel out as far as what services, you know, through a payment plan process or just the scope of services we work with the attorney. That's, that's really the conversation. A good attorney is going to be one to give you through a consultation process. Like, here's the, the lay of the land of the work. What can, what's your budget? You know, and really that should be a line item budget for your project that you have to think about, you know, or especially if, you know, let's say, I know we're focusing on film, but let's say anybody who, you know, the TV creative and they're trying to come up with shows, you know, if you get that project picked up by a network, they can help cover some of those costs. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about ways that you can offset it from a business perspective, but to ignore legal and to try to bypass, you know, engaging an attorney, I think it's something to be wary of because at the end of the day, when it comes down to litigation or having to, you know, have an attorney draft up a demand letter to try to secure your rights that have been potentially infringed upon, that's going to cost you more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a matter of, do you want to work it out on the transactional side or on the litigation side, which is a lot more expensive. Right. Uh, And so just to go back a little bit, let's say that I am a person and we do have we have a wide range of people who listen, but we do have people who um, also do television or interested in that. But let's say that, okay, initially I start off as an indie filmmaker. So, you know, I'm making films within my community. I'm putting it on my website 
and I didn't necessarily do everything right because this is what I see. Like, like let's say that you provide me with contracts for my actors or everybody works on set. And then what I do is I pass it on to my friend for them to use. Is that a good thing to do or is that like a no? I guess just to kind of clarify, you give it to your friend. Yeah, it has a totally different production company, but she can't necessarily afford it. But I'm like, hey, girl, it's okay. I got these contracts. You can use mine. And I let her use that. It's like, a, is that a no? Like, don't do that, Siobhan. Well, and this is where that's actually a good example to kind of highlight certain things, right? So it depends on the contracts that also you've secured with the talent involved in the in the film, right? If it doesn't have specific language that allows you the right to assign or license, you know, the rights over to another entity, mm-hmm. now you potentially breach that agreement, right? Because mm-hmm. you're using the talent's name and likeness. Uh, for the particular, you know, film project. And is it only for that project? Can you use it for marketing and publicity purposes? Can you use it in a sequel? I mean, these are questions that if the agreement doesn't doesn't touch it and you've got a very protective um, actor or actress, let's say, right, who's very protective of, of their brand mm-hmm. and doesn't like the way in which maybe the images were manipulated by the, the friend who has their production company that you ended up giving the project to, that could be problematic. So mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of unanswered questions that, again, the devil is in the details in the types of agreements that are drafted. You did clarify about sharing contracts and just how important it is to at least start that conversation with a lawyer. So how, if I am someone who does want to do everything the correct way, and I say, I know that I need an entertainment lawyer, What are some things that I need to look for to make sure that this person is going to be able to meet my need as a filmmaker or creative or even somebody who wants to license their music? Because I know all lawyers are not specific to entertainment law. So what are things that I need to be looking for that says, aha, you do know what you're talking about? Yes. Number one, you do want someone who is an entertainment lawyer that understands the business. I think what's important is understanding what is kind of their stronger areas within mm-hmm. entertainment because entertainment is broken down to different facets. You know, for instance, like I, I have an area of specialty in terms of, you know, talent agencies and management firms and, you know, getting those, getting talent agencies licensed and bonded, right? Mm-hmm. Dealing with the film and television side, music through music licensing, and negotiating certain deals, you know, for songwriters and producers, but not every attorney will have an experience maybe on the film and TV side. Maybe they're more music attorneys in the Atlanta market. For instance, you've got a lot of, you know, solo entertainment attorneys that are big on music because music was such a staple in Atlanta for so long, but now film and television has become such a major boom that that's an area that they're maybe becoming more well-versed in, but may not necessarily have that specialty as opposed to those out in L.A. or New York. I would say, you know, just feel it out, like, as far as what they've presented on the website mm-hmm. um, and have, you know, they're willing to do a, a consultation with you. I know some attorneys will charge a consultation fee. Some don't, like I don't, because for me, I feel like I need to kind of hear from you and kind of assess 
what you may think the problem is, but here a little bit more information for me to assess what the issues. You can't be the doctor and the patient. <laughs> right. But, you know, actually doing a full-on engagement and experience that does help, you know, as far as someone who's been doing it maybe for 20, 25 years, but don't dismiss someone who's been doing it for five, 10 years, because it, it also comes down to how knowledgeable do they seem to be in the subject matter. And you can, you can look at that based off of references, um, those who have worked with that attorney, anybody that you may know in the community, have you seen them doing presentations? Are they out talking about this area? You know, and also their availability. Do they seem to be responsive and informative? And I think that's very important because a lot of times when clients get upset with, I feel, is if attorneys are not responding to them mm-hmm. and their needs, right? Mm-hmm. We attorneys, we're, we're busy. But if you feel that, you know, you're being neglected, I know that that's usually where there's a breakdown of communications between an attorney and a client. So I think it's very much important to just kind of get a feel and sense. And that's a hard thing unless you, you might have worked with that person, you know, before, but I think those are some of the things to always just kind of like clue into. So again, going back to the, the years of experience thing, it's easier to go with someone who's been doing it for 25 years and just someone who's been doing it from five or 10, but that person isn't doing it for five or 10. They may be just as low first and maybe more available than the person who's been doing it for 20, 25 years because they may have someone else doing the work for them. So it just really depends. <laughs> it really depends. And that's one of those like culture questions, right? Like right. you haven't gone into a workplace, you know, you know, you try to ask, what's the culture like? You don't know until you're already in it in right. a certain way. But then there are other ways that you, from an objectifiable standpoint, you can kind of assess like, is this a, an attorney I, I really want to go with? So I wanted to talk about in uh, one of my favorite shows, Blackish, where mm-hmm. you discuss protecting your rights under a writer collaboration agreement. Can you tell everyone who might not be familiar about what happened with Blackish? And then we can uh, go from there on a couple of questions. Yeah, absolutely. Kenya Barris actually uh, was getting sued by a friend from going back from college who alleged that basically they kind of came up with the idea of the show Blackish or what, what we know as Blackish now. And what was interesting was the, the claim was that they came up with the idea. They actually had gotten a development deal with BH1. I maybe I forget the, the time frame, um, but like 10 years ago, but it didn't go anywhere. And then moving, you know, fast forward, all of a sudden, Kane Barris gets a, a deal with ABC and now we have the show Blackish. And so what I found interesting in the complaint was that a lot of the claims, the cause of action is focused on, you know, breach of implied confidentiality and duty of good faith and fair dealing and all, everything was implied, 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 meaning there wasn't an actual written collaboration agreement. <laughs> meaning, I mean, these are my first questions. Like if there was an actual agreement, I mean, this would have been something that would have been settled out a lot sooner and Mm -hmm. it ended up getting settled out. But I just thought it was fascinating because the the takeaway from it was the fact that everything being implied means that there's not an express contract stating these things. Mm -hmm. And so they did what most, you know, young filmmakers and uh, creatives do when they get in the business together or they're coming up with ideas. There's nothing is written down on paper. Now, of course, you know, I don't know the intricacies of the details in the paperwork and also through right. the discovery process to win one, but, you know, 
could have tracked down maybe certain types of communications they may have had, especially if they had a development deal with VH1. But nonetheless, uh, a writer's collaboration agreement is something that's very important because it does establish the relationship of the parties who would own the copyright to that work. You know, without a written collaboration agreement stating otherwise, each party owns a 50% interest in it. So it's equivalent of, like, let's say a home. If both parties took joint title to the home, and if you wanted to go ahead and sell it, you need to get the other's consent, right? right. Uh, and that's just a default. So under copyright law, those are the defaults is that each party owns a 50% interest unless it's specified otherwise in the written agreement. And they're both considered joint authors, which means both of them have to be engaged in terms of negotiation if, if someone's trying to license or buy out that particular written product. So that's where I thought it was very important to kind of stress, you know, and highlight collaboration agreements. Because when things are collaborative, you're not thinking about exit strategies. Mm-hmm. When things go wrong, that's where everyone starts thinking about what are my rights? Mm-hmm. What can I get compensated for? And so that's really what a written collaboration agreement is, it's like a prenuptial agreement, right? Because you're, in, you're embarking on a journey with someone, it's like a marriage, you know, but you've got to think about what is the downside to this? What if we decided we have creative differences and we need to come up with an exit strategy? Who owns what was created up to this point? Can, you know, one party or the other uh, continue to create a derivative work off of what was already done? How does that all you know, get squared away? Do you buy the other person out? All of these things get addressed in, can get addressed in a written collaboration agreement. And that's why it's important to have one. Okay, so then when, when, when as a writer are you just being like extra? And I'm not saying that to be funny, but like, <laughs> let's say, <laughs> let's say for me, okay, let's say that I'm about to do a web series and i know in my mind my end game is that i eventually want to shop this around for it to be a tv series Mm -hmm. just like hypothetical and Mm -hmm. then in the process let's say that i write i don't know the first season and i share it with my creative tribe before i share it with them is it, do I need to get them to sign something like, hey, I don't want you to be out in these streets stealing my work? Or that's my question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, it's very important to have an NDA. You know, I, I say this, you know, you want to be cautious about who you're sharing it with. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're definitely going to be sharing it with other creatives, then yes, you know, an NDA agreement is something that may seem like it's over the top, but it's to protect yourself at the same time. Now, whether or not the other party is going to actually sign, they may tell you to kick rocks and go pound sand. But then at that point, <laughs> you know, you know, you can be sharing it with them, period. Right, you right. know, like what is the on benefit of sharing it with them besides just getting some feedback, right? You right. want to find your trusted sources. Um, and those who actually are in the business and have some stature in the business, that's worthwhile. Now, when it comes to, let's say, you know, networks and you're trying to hit them with an MBA, you're not going to get that signed by them, right? They're going to they're gonna hit you instead with uh, a submissions release form. Mm-hmm. And those are really hard to try to negotiate because they look at it as, hey, if you want to possibly get picked up, sign this. You know, there's nothing we can really do about it mm-hmm. um, beyond that. And it's to, to protect them, of course, now. But that's why as far as, you know, the business protocol at that point, 
is in the event they do express interest, they want to know if you're rep by an attorney. And if you are, and that's when you're, you really want to have the attorney engaging in those discussions mm-hmm. um, because they, we know how to kind of protect those communications in the event, let's say at a later date, there is the issue of potential infringement. Right. And so, you know, the NDA definitely is important. Um, I guess my overall advice to it, it's not being, it's not being extra to a degree. It's extra. It's like you're trying to really enforce it on a network, right? Let's just be realistic. Right. And it on, you know, your, your fellow cohorts, you know, as part of a collaboration process. No, it is important. Um, but it depends on who you're also sharing it with and why you're sharing it with them. So again, always focus on the business reason of why you're doing what you're doing and whether or not it's even worth it. And if it's, you know, to have them possibly rewrite, you know, then you definitely want to have some type of clearance. So first off, that if they are doing any types of edits and in the collaboration process, that they're they're signing anything that they've done like you still own the work right you know making it very clear in the scope of the relationship between you and that party that way it makes it again clear clear in the chain of title that you don't have that person coming in later and and doing the same thing that happened to Kenya Barris which is hey you know you took my work right (laughs) I was a, a author of that particular project I guess in my mind, like retraining all of our creative minds that we do need to look at ourselves as a business because I think we don't do that. It's just like ingrained in us like, oh, it's my art. I love it. I want everybody to see it. But we're not thinking about protection and doing the best thing in the interest of our business. I know there are screenwriters who, okay, will write. And if you use uh, different programs, once you're done, you can register your script uh, with the Writers Guild. But that doesn't mean that when I did that, <laughs> that is protected through copyright, correct? Right. I always love this question because I always hear that, well, you know, I registered the WGA. <laughs> Let me just clarify a couple of things, right? The WGA is a union and the, the Copyright Office is the U.S. Copyright Office that is guided by federal law. So there is definitely a difference between the two, right? So the great news is this. To register with the WGA, it's cheap. To file your copyright, is cheap as well. You know, anywhere from 35 to $55, depends on how you're filing, you know, certain provisions. But with that said, it's, it's nominal at the end of the day. It's the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. What I would definitely stress is, yes, it is good to still file with the WGA, Definitely want to file with the U.S. Copyright Office what is copyrightable. So, you know, if you're dealing with the actual script, that's, that's what is copyrightable. Uh, if you were working the, in the realm of television, you know, the more finalized form of the work is you're better off with, like the actual pilot script, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can copyright, you know, the pitch decks. But, again, all of this is to say it's not going to shield you from potential infringement. What it does do is create a record of you having access to and owning it at a certain point in time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, infringement is something that can always incur. It's just a matter of, do you have the tools to now enforce your rights? Mm -hmm. And the way of enforcing your rights is by making sure you register your copyright because here's where it's important. If you have a potential infringement claim, in order to file under copyright law as far as copyright infringement goes, 
you have to have a registered copyright to show that that helps show authorship and ownership of the work. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have it, you can't really, you know, get certain benefits like statutory damages and attorney's fees, you know, that are kind of built into the statute. So those are the benefits of actually filing. Now, if, you're, if you have contract claims, you know, breach of contract, that's state law. That's something that's separate. But nonetheless, it's still important to, to register your work, especially because, again, going to bank, if you want to talk about keeping it lean, <laughs> you're better off. It's cheaper to have it filed and to have it stamped to show proof of authorship at a certain date and time rather than having to recraft that narrative in a litigation standpoint to even satisfy one of the elements of copyright infringement. That's, that's tougher. So again, with the WGA question, it's good to do, but it's, you know, the copyright that actually holds more weight given the fact that it's, it's guided by federal law. So then what would you say to someone who, let's say, script done and they're out here like trying to shop it around and they have an agent? What is the difference between an agent and an attorney? Like, cause I've heard somebody say, oh, I have an agent, I'm cool. But like, I thought that you needed both. Well, not needed both as far as an agent, if that's what you want, but you need to have a lawyer as well as an agent. Yes, I agree. And I'm glad that you brought this question up because it's come up, uh, surprisingly, it's come up a lot lately. And I don't know if it's because I've been doing more of these um, presentations, but I usually get the question, can you shop my project, right? Mm -hmm. And the answer is I can maybe connect you with someone who can. Mm-hmm. There's a difference in what an entertainment attorney does versus an agent. Now, you will have some attorneys that will tell you that they can shop your project, but question that a little bit further of like, okay, is it based off of like someone that you know? Can you can you shop it to a Netflix contact? <laughs> is that who it is? Right. I usually try to distinguish of like, as far as shopping projects, what I can help you do is I can maybe give you some feedback as an attorney uh, in terms of the pitch deck and the Bible or, you know, as far as the script, you know, the script clearance, just making sure if there are any potential trademark or copyright issues, um, contractual issues that we need to consider. But really an agent is, they're the ones that are in the business of shopping a project, right? Because they're in the business of understanding of the pulse of what's going on more intricately in terms of here are the deals that are going on right now that Netflix are doing and Hulu and all these different platforms, right? Mm -hmm. So they also take a, you know, they take a percentage. Again, there are some attorneys who who do do it, but the difference between the two is actually kind of critical. Like I said, the agent is one who, if they're specialized in shopping projects, and and I'm going to put this more in the TV realm than in film, so I'll get to that distinction in a second, but the TV realm, you want to find an agent who actually is good at, you know, really shopping it to, to networks, right? Um, and has that experience. They've got that proven track record. So, of course, you've got your big agencies like, you know, CEA and, and UTA. But, again, the entertainment attorney is one who helps negotiate the deals and put it in writing. The agent is the one who can actually possibly get, get you in the door and have that conversation with the executives because the minute an attorney is involved, the networks are just going to bounce it straight to their legal department. That's how it's going to work. And so before they get to that point, the business people kind of want to be maybe more involved. And that's where you kind of get more, 
more access into, okay, here's what the potential deal terms are. Here's what we're talking about. And the entertainment attorneys can then draft up the paperwork to reflect the intention of the parties. That's really the distinction. Um, when you're looking at it in the film route, now as far as distribution deals, there are entertainment attorneys who, you know, they've got direct contacts with distributors and, and networks, you know, for, for film projects. But again, your agent operates differently from an entertainment attorney. You know, your entertainment attorney is skilled in drafting contracts and being able to negotiate the particulars of a deal, whereas the agent is the business person. They're the ones that understand the industry and are able to have more like access to those contacts because that's really how they make their bread and butter is through that type of network, if that makes any sense. No, it does. I got you. Yeah, and it's just really important to kind of understand that because, again, it, it, you know, entertainment attorneys who say they can do that just, you know, if they're asking for money up front, do you kind of want to question certain things just because there's there's never any type of guarantee, right? The agents don't even work where they take an upfront fee. Mm-hmm. They get a certain percentage on the back end based off of the deal. That's straw. So even if an entertainment attorney does do that on the back end, you know, if they're working with you, I, I just think it's more prudent to have both on your team. Find a good agent. It's kind of tricky. If you're if you're a new screenwriter, right? Mm-hmm. A literary agent isn't going to be scoping you out. <laughs> You've right. got to make a pitch right. as to why Maybe that entertainment attorney can help give you that access. And that's where, you know, they, they give you the introduction to someone that they know, they think is a good agent that will take new writers um, and they have a good track record. Those types of things I think are critical. And that's really the difference between the two. Okay. And just to, before we uh, wrap it up, I wanted to ask you, for the person who says, okay, Marissa, you totally like gathered me during this whole time and I want to move forward and do things the right way. It can be very overwhelming to say, okay, I need a contract for my actors, for my director, for my um, camera crew, light crew, whatever. So then they're looking and like, I need all of these things. But I saw that you offer a bundle and it's basically a budget-friendly legal service. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, when you have a, when you kind of have a project that you're working on, you're looking at all the different types of agreements that you need. What you really need is counsel kind of working their way through with you from the, the pre-production part all the way through distribution. That's the ideal situation because that attorney will become more familiar with the project. They'll become more familiar with you. You know, if they're of legal counsel all the way throughout, they know the agreements that you need, right? Mm -hmm. So it just makes it easier because you don't have to constantly worry about whether or not, should I go to the attorney for this? Oh, are they going to charge me for this? And the way I look at how I provide services to clients, you know, you, you may come to me for a contract. And even though you're coming to me to draft a contract, I hear you. We'll talk about it. But I am going to ask you the question of, like, tell me a little bit more about your business. Because I don't sell documents. That's the difference of how I approach my legal services. Is I'm not selling you documents. I'm selling you knowledge. I'm selling you my time. And really trying to help you grow and grow your brand. Whether it's to cultivate the brand, to expand the brand, to disseminate out into the marketplace for brand awareness. I mean, these are things that I, I do take very seriously because I know, you know, with entertainment art form, it's, it's a tough craft. <laughs> you don't get 
compensated well for it always, if at all at times, if you're starting out. So, you know, you really want to be strategic in how you're moving and exhausting your creative efforts. And so I really like to work long-term with clients, you know, especially those who are just kind of starting out. They're, they're my favorite ones just because there's so much knowledge that it took me years to learn. I'm still learning. That's why it's a practice of law. I've never mastered it. <laughs> no one right. does. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with, with entertainment, the business keeps changing. So, you know, trying to keep up with the times, there's just a lot that's happening. We're inundated with content, uh, good and bad <laughs> content. So to, you know, have someone who's going to bat for you from the beginning and understands your story kind of throughout and your business objectives, I think is a smarter way to kind of approach an attorney for the long haul. And of course, you know, you won't, again, that's kind of that culture question. You don't know this is the right fit of an attorney. And so maybe you've tested them out, you know, doing a document or two and see their communications with you, their responsiveness, their thoroughness, that will help dictate whether or not you want to bring them on board. So that's kind of, as far as the bundle package service, I always offer that because I'm not just offering you documents. I'm actually helping you kind of think about certain, you know, issues that may arise. You know, it's easier and rather engage me in the pre-production process. And then by the time you get to post-production, you want to incorporate music okay, good luck with that. Are you getting a composer (laughs) or are you looking to to license music and are you utilizing, you know, music libraries or actually looking to use a song that's very popular because now we've got to talk about different clearance rights that we've got to process. And so it's just easier to deal with an attorney from start to finish. You can kind of anticipate those problems and start building that into the timeline because that's another thing that's important, the timeline of your project. Right. And that helps keep the cost down in the long run. So that that is what I offer as far as a bundle service package. And I customize it based off of where you're at. If you've already, you know, gone through the pre-production process, you're in production and, and heading towards post, you know, I would still want to take a look at those documents to make sure not anything that we would need to revisit and renegotiate. Um, but definitely prioritize, you know, from production to distribution, kind of where we're at to make sure holistically we're all set to go. I think that's an excellent service. And I like that you don't have this cookie cutter here, one size fits all. So I think that's really um, pretty amazing that that's what you do. Yeah. And I try to be very, thank you. <laughs> I try to be fair um, because I understand, you know, it's, you know, it's a tough business. And so I try to work with clients, you know, within their budget, but at the same time, making sure I'm compensated fairly for the amount of time that I'm also investing as well. So, absolutely, you know, Sometimes an hourly rate is not appropriate. A flat rate fee may be or may not be or a hybrid structure. It's just dependent on the situation at hand, which is why I think the consultations are so important. And so whenever anybody asks me, like, how much do you charge? I mean, I can give you my hourly rate, but that's not doing a service to you because it may not actually be fitting to the circumstance. And I've already turned you off to even wanting to talk to me because you feel like I'm already expensive. But we could have probably worked that out. So you know, I give the lawyerly response of it depends, you know, but then go into tell me a little bit more about your business. Tell me a little bit more about what it is that, you know, you think you need at this point in time. Gotcha. So our last two famous questions, what are you watching <laughs> and what are you reading? Oh, okay. What am I watching? You know, there's been a few shows that I have, and I, I'm a binge watcher. I, I have a hard time watching shows in real time, week to week, and waiting for them. How long is them? <laughs> I'm impatient. What can I say? I've got things to do. But 
um, what I will wait for uh, this season. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching This Is Us. That's one of my yes. favorite shows. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So I, um, as far as binge watching lately, I actually check out the show on my block on Netflix. And this is the thing about Netflix. Netflix is kind of like um, Apple in a way where they'll just They'll let you know they're coming out with something or they'll just drop it. But either way, mm-hmm. like Apple will not change their prices. They're always going to be bougie and expensive, right? Mm-hmm. Netflix will not invest in marketing. They don't need to. People go nope. to Netflix all the time. And they've got a huge catalog that you just got to swim through. And so sometimes you miss, you know, some really good shows. That's at least for me, I feel like that. Mm-hmm. So I was a little late for the game. And usually I'm more on top of this, but it's just been a busy last six months. But on my block, is one that I watched a few weeks ago, and I thought it was hilarious. And it was his first season. I thought it was pretty good. And I was trying to support my black and brown shows, for sure. And as far as another show, Ozarks, uh, with Jason Bateman. He's a really good actor, and I appreciate that now he's flipping over to the directorial role. And he's doing a really good job with the show Ozarks on Netflix. If you haven't seen that, check that out as well. I will have to do that. Yes. And as far as what I'm reading, sadly... Uh, it's, it's trade journals, like the, the Hollywood Reporter, Variety, any types of books just to kind of further my craft. I haven't read anything for, I mean, to me, that's for fun. I haven't picked up like a novel in a while that I could actually stay awake to sit through or not speed read through. Uh, that's where, where law kind of killed it for me. <laughs> I used I, to love reading and now I was like speed read to get information. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let everyone know how they can keep in touch with you, your website, social media, those type of things. Absolutely. So you can find my website um, at crespolawoffice.net. So that's C-R-E-S as in Sam, P as in Paul O. Law, office.net. And as far as my social media handles, um, Instagram is where you'll usually find me at, at crespolawoffice. And if anybody has any questions or want to reach out, on the website as well, but you can also email me at mcrespolaw at gmail.com. Yeah, so please, my creative filmmakers, sister friends, writers, directors, I hope that you have taken in everything we discussed. I hope that it changes your perspective of just how much you do need a lawyer. And I hope it changes your mind for the for the good. Y'all know my famous lines. Don't talk about it. Be about it. Go live those filmmaking dreams. And you can find us at The Creative Outsiders on Instagram. And our website is the same. Please subscribe. Leave a message. Let us know how we are doing. Uh, also share. Let other people know the goodness we have going on over here. And I will talk to you all next time.